17, 18, when you got it, say so. It says, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who are rich, have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who have heard it, and those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter says, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or sister or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Lord God, thank you so much for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for loving us as you do. Lord, we humble ourselves before you, and we thank you because we are your church. We are your people. We are your hands. We are your feet. And so, Lord, let us be a people who hear you this morning. Let us be a people who respond to you in faith this morning. May you be glorified in us, Lord God, in all things, Lord, that we hear this morning and do. We pray this in Jesus' good name, and everyone said, Amen. You may be seen in the presence of the Lord. If you do not have an outline, if you would, just raise your hand and the ushers will be sure to get you an outline. I want to be sure that you're able to follow along in the introduction of the sermon. I want to be sure that you're able to take some notes. And then, as always, I encourage you, utilize these notes to help other people um, grow in their faith. Sit down with someone. Share with them what you are learning, what you are hearing on Sunday mornings. And uh, hopefully it will be helpful to them. And I know for sure it will be helpful for you as you share and you dig in a little bit. And so we're continuing on in our series whenever necessary. And so today we're going to talk about a wealthy young leader, a wealthy young leader. There's no question if you look at your outline, money makes the world go around. One preacher said it like this. He said, faith moves heaven, money moves the earth. Think about that. Faith moves heaven, money moves the earth, right? You can have all the faith in the world, and if you ain't got no money to pay your light bill, guess what's happening? Mm-hmm. You have to have money, right, in this earth to do certain things. And so what I want you to think about is this, is that to be clear, money is not evil by itself. Having money, having nice things, and enjoying God's provision are not wrong. Someone said amen there. Right, it's a, it's it, money. We have to grasp that it's not evil by itself. It's not you. You're, you should be able to have. Not everybody is going to be rich. That's where some people get it wrong. But here's what I want you to understand: chasing it is wrong. 
Loving it is wrong. Trusting it is wrong. And hoarding it or not sharing it is wrong. Those are things that are wrong when it comes to us having money. In this evangelistic encounter, Jesus is not just dealing with a religious person. We saw that last week. He is dealing with a wealthy one, a wealthy religious person who probably attributed his wealth to God's blessing as any good Jewish boy would. Because at that time, him being Jewish, he would know that all that he had was from God. No matter how he was living, he would understand the blessing that he has is because of the Lord. And the reason why we know this is because of the way that he comes to Jesus. He comes to Christ with this question, what, 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 what must I do in order to gain eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? Here's what I want you to think about this morning. Riches cannot buy eternal life, but they can keep us from it. Riches cannot, you, you listen, you can't. I'm assuming this young man may have thought, right, and as we'll see as we walk through, that maybe he could have purchased eternal life. Maybe he could have done something good to earn eternal life. That's how a lot of people are in this world, right? They think they can do something. Some people want to give, and, and for some reason, maybe they think that they deserve something because they give so much or whatever the case is. But the reality is, riches cannot buy eternal life, but they can keep us free from it. And so as we share the gospel with others, as we are living our lives and wanting to be a light in the midst of this world, we need to keep that in mind that when people are bound by riches or what they consider to be riches, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but when, when they're bound by those things that are riches, those things can keep them from experiencing eternal life. And so the first thing I want to ask you to repeat after me is this, say, sometimes, sometimes. the most effective evangelistic answer is a question. Y'all sound like you're sleeping today, but it's all right. We're going to wake up. I'm going to help y'all. Sometimes the most effective evangelistic answer is a question. And what I want you to know is that there are a few things that will be repetitious from the, from the last week's message because there's a lot of similarity to the way that Jesus dealt with this rich young ruler. The way that Jesus dealt with this young man, the way that he dealt with him was similar to how he dealt with the Pharisee that he was dealing with last week, to the lawyer that he dealt with last week where Jesus began to engage in questions. But you'll notice if we look here at verse 20, verse 20 to verse 22, it shows us here that Jesus comes in, um, I'm sorry, verse 18 and 19. It says, now a certain ruler asked him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus respond? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but, but one, and that is God. And so as we learned last week, what did we learn? Jesus likes to ask questions, right? We learned that last week. Jesus asks a lot of questions, and we should learn how to ask questions, but he asked these questions and he always asked the right ones. And so this is an account that is in the synoptic gospels. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this particular story. And according to Luke, we see that he was a ruler. According to Matthew, we see that he was what? That he was a young man. And according to Mark, he ran and he knelt before Jesus, which shows that he had some respect for Jesus. He wasn't just a guy who came to Jesus and just wanted to try to trip him up or anything like that. There's nothing to make us think that he was being insincere or that he was being disingenuous with the question that he asked. He wasn't like the lawyer who was trying to say, okay, let me, let me trip you up a little. Let me, let, me, let me test you to see what you think. That wasn't this guy. This guy was genuine. This guy was sincere. And the question remains, why did Jesus not answer him? Think about it. 
Now, last week we had an excuse, didn't we? Jesus didn't answer the guy because he was prideful. He didn't answer the guy because he, had, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't really asking Jesus for a real answer. We, we had a reason for that. But this week, I want you to notice, Jesus does not answer his question. And here's what we have to think in mind. Sometimes, even sincere people need to be asked questions before they are answered with their questions. Sometimes sincere people, I want you to understand this, a sincere heart is not the same thing as a heart that is ready for salvation or ready for the good news. Let me say that again. A sincere heart is not the same thing as a heart that is ready for the good news or that is ready for salvation. There's a difference. You can be sincerely wrong about stuff. Are you here? Right? Just because you're sincere doesn't mean that you're really ready. And here's, again, this goes back to what we learned last week, that we have to be discerning when someone comes to us, even those who have sincerity in their heart. Even those who come to you, and you know they're being genuine, you know they're being for real. So what does Jesus' question do? Well, the first thing we realize is this, is that Jesus makes it clear that only one is good, and that is God. Why does he do that? There's a lot of different reasons why people give as to why they think or why they assume that Jesus asked him this question about goodness and he makes this point about being good, maybe Jesus was pointing to the fact that if you're calling him good, that he must be God. Maybe that's what Jesus was saying. Maybe Jesus was trying to communicate to this young man and everyone that was listening, if you are calling me good and I am really good, then I must be God. Maybe that's what he was doing. I don't know. Some people think that's it. What I think is this, is Jesus was trying to drive home a point. He was getting ready to ask him a question. He was loading the gun to now go ahead and ask him the real question that got to the heart of the matter. And so what we know is that Jesus was communicating this. Why? Because and the reason why Jesus brings this up, and this is why I believe that that's the reason why Jesus says there is no one good except God, it is because our standards of good are much lower than God's. See, we will say we're good. We will say we're okay. We will say that we are all right. We will say that we deserve salvation. Maybe there is something that we need to do. We will say those things, but God says, no, man, your goodness is like filthy rags. That's what God says. And so Jesus is driving the point home with this young man, letting him know, hey, you know what? I want you to think about this. You're calling me good? Time out. Why are you calling me good? There's no one good except God. And then Jesus goes on to the next point and say this with me. Say evangelism, evangelism. is always about the heart. Evangelism is always about the heart. It's never just about going through a presentation. It's never just about having a conversation. It is always about the heart. Evangelism is always about getting to the heart of what's going on with someone when they're having this engagement with you, when they're talking to you, when they're listening to what you're saying, when you're talking to them. That's why you have to learn to ask questions because you know what I've done? Listen, this, this happens in life all the time from, the, you know, from dealing with your kids to dealing with employees to dealing with it. You know what, you know what people do all the time? They yes you to death. They yes you to death because they don't want to argue. Or they want you to shut up. Or they don't want to hear what you got to say. And so yes, yes, yes. Remember I told you about the story where I went to downtown with somebody and they saw these guys that were skating. These guys didn't want to get saved. They wanted to skate. Hello. And guess what we were doing? We were interrupting their fun for the night. We were interrupting them for doing what they want to do. So you know what's the easiest way? Don't engage the conversation. Yes, yes, yes. You want to pray? Amen. Let's pray. Keep it moving. It's not about the heart, right? 
It's got to be about the heart when we're dealing with the topic of evangelism. And so what we have here is the young man. And I want you to think about this guy. The young man was not only sincere, but he was wealthy. I want us to think about this young man for a moment. What type of guy was he, right? This is a guy, he was wealthy. He was successful. It says that he was a young ruler, and so this is what it means. What it means is that he wasn't a ruler in the Roman Empire. He was a ruler, potentially, he was a ruler of the Sanhedrin. He was a young elder in Israel. So he was a young elder in Israel. He was a guy that was part of this ruling body of religious people, and that means that he was well-known. Not only was he well-known, but by his own admission, and I want you to notice in this conversation, Jesus never says, you're not good. Jesus never says, oh, you haven't kept those things from your youth. Now, it's impossible for this guy to actually keep these things from his youth. We all know that. None of us is going to be perfect at that. We would have to say, man, you know, I tried. That, that, that's probably the best thing that you really say if you're being honest, right? I've tried. I've tried to keep all of those things. Nobody's perfect, right? But, but I depend on the Day of Atonement. Hallelujah. You see, the Jewish people have the Day of Atonement. I depend on the Day of Atonement. You know what, Jesus? I want you to know I've tried to keep those laws. I try to live them imperfectly, but I do bring the sacrifice on the day of atonement because I recognize that I'm not sinful. That's not what the young man says, but Jesus doesn't contradict him. And so you know what this meant? This meant that he was an upstanding guy. You know what kind of guy this was? This is probably the kind of guy you're praying that your daughter marries or that your son becomes. It's this guy. It's this guy that is a, a guy who is pious. It's a guy who is religiously right. It's a guy who is successful in business. It's a guy who, you, I mean, I don't know about you, but I want my daughter to marry a guy like that. Hello. Huh. That's what I want. I don't want her to marry, marry some bum that don't love Jesus, not serving the Lord. That's not what I want, right? I want her to marry, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I want my son to be a guy. I don't want him to live in my house for the rest of his life. Hello, somebody, Right? I want him to be successful, right, in a financial way. I want him to love Jesus. I want him to obey the commands. Like, this is this guy. This guy is one. I mean, think about this. This guy was an elder. He, he, he could have been an elder in any church. Could he not? He could have passed the test of eldership. Hello. He would have went there. He would have known all the answers. He would have been a guy that was living right. Everybody who knew him would say, hey, man, this guy, is love, he loves Jesus. He's serving the Lord. He would have been that guy. And yet, you know what Jesus wanted to do? Jesus wanted to get past the sincerity of his question to the heart behind his question. It wasn't just about the sincerity that he came to Jesus. He sincerely wanted to receive eternal life. He sincerely wanted to hear what he needed to do. Jesus made it clear, only God is good. And like I said a moment ago, if he were being honest, he would have said, you know what? Man, I've tried to keep those commands. But you know there's one command of the second tablet because that's what Jesus was quoting to him. Jesus doesn't quote the first tablet. You know, there was two tablets that uh, the laws of God were written on. The first tablet was the one, the, the, the commands that were all God-focused, the ones that were about worshiping God, right, about having no idols. Uh, it was the, on, on that first tablet. On the second tablet, it was all about dealing with people, loving them, honoring your father and your mother, right, like those types of things, not stealing, not murdering. All of that stuff was there. But you notice that Jesus left out one. He never said you should not covet, did he not? He didn't say that. He never said, you shall not covet. Why? Because that was the issue in this guy's heart. See, he was successful. 
He had stuff. He was, he was apparently ambitious. And, and I mean, ambitious enough that he runs to Jesus, kneels down, and says, good teacher, honor, respects Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do in order to be saved? Jesus leaves out coveting, right? The young man responds that he kept all of these things, yet there was something that was missing. So let's read what Jesus says to him in verse 20 to verse 22. And so Jesus responds to him, you know the commandments. He doesn't ask him to repeat the commandments. He's like, you know the commandments. Again, I want you to know Jesus is telling this guy, you know the commandments. You know what the commandments are. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And so we know that all of these commands here, every one of us in this room, think about this, every one of us in this room has, I would assume, has broken almost every single one of these commands. Because we know what? These commands are about our heart, not just about our actions. We know that adultery is not simply about the act itself. It's about the motives of the heart. It's about what's going on inside of us. We know that murder is not just about actions itself. It's about what's inside of our heart. When we hate someone, when we don't forgive someone, when we wish evil for someone, like those things are murderous, right? Those things are there. Honoring our father and our mother. Come on, man. Every one of us has dishonored our father and mother. Maybe to different degrees, but man, come on. Even if our parents don't even know when we dishonored them, we dishonor them. And so the truth is, none of us has really kept these commands. And so Jesus goes on, tells the young man this, and then in verse 21, and he said, the young man responds, all these things I have kept from my youth. In verse 22, Jesus says this. He says, so Jesus heard these things. He doesn't argue with him. He said to him, you still lack one thing. And I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, you still lack one thing. You're covetous. That isn't what he says. What Jesus does is he deals with him and he, and he gets to the heart of this covetousness. He gets to the heart of what's going on in this young man. And he tells him to do something. He gives him a command. He doesn't tell him. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is not saying, sell everything and you're going to be saved. That isn't what Jesus said. Jesus isn't saying, sell everything and you're going to inherit eternal life. That isn't what Jesus says. Jesus says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Huh. Jesus checks him right where he is. He's like, oh, you want to follow me? Well, let me tell you what you need to do. This isn't a blanket statement for every person that comes to Jesus. What, what happens is, is this young man, he comes to Christ. And while this young man could probably be an elder in any church, his heart was still deceived. Get that. While he was religious and he was pious and he knew all the answers, there was still something in his heart. He was still deceived. He was covetous. His riches owned him. This is why Jesus deals with this situation, because his riches owned him. Think about it this way. His sincere desire for eternal life was eclipsed by his possessions. His sincere desire for eternal life was eclipsed by his possessions. Why is this so important? This is so important because you know what we need to think about? Is there anything that is eclipsing our desire for eternal life? Is there anything that is greater? You see, because here's what I want you to know. If it's a person, if it's a thing, if it's things, whatever it is, if anything is greater than Christ in your life, guess what? He wants that. 
Not because he's mean. Not because he doesn't love you. It's because he loves you. And he knows that if anything comes before him, you'll turn away from him. You'll deny him. You'll dishonor him. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. And here's what I want you to grasp, is that while salvation cannot be bought or earned, it cannot be experienced apart from total surrender. I want you to look at verse 28. Verse 28 says something that's really important. And Peter says this. He responds, and he says, see, we have left all and followed you. Peter's like, hey, man, we've done that. We left everything, and we followed you. And I love Jesus' words back to him. Because this is a promise for us and our believers. This is a promise for us that, has left things, that have left things for Christ. He says, so he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parent or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the present age to come eternal life. Here's what I want you to know. What I want you to realize is that to follow Christ, it means to surrender all. It means to lay everything down. It means to say, I, listen, Lord, I am going to come and I am going to follow you. Nothing is going to eclipse my hunger and my thirst for eternal life. Now, those are rough words, y'all, because, you know, we live in this culture that is so PC in this culture. We live in this culture where everything is about balance and all this kind of stuff. I don't know about you, but Jesus doesn't seem to view balance the way that we do. Jesus doesn't seem to view balance the way that we do, the, the, the way that we think about life. That's not Christianity. You're either all in with Christ or you're not. That's the bottom line. There's no halfway. You can't say, well, you know, I got this house thing. Oh, well, my wife thing. Oh, well, my husband thing. Oh, well, my kids thing. No, no, no. None of that. All of that has to bow to Christ. It is about serving Jesus above everything else. And if you're not willing to do it, man, I don't know if you're a real follower. That's just the bottom line. If you are not willing to lay it all down for him, lay everything down the way these apostles did, the way these people did, that is what Christ did. Now, you got to remember, Jesus told these guys to teach us how we were supposed to obey his commands. And if we're going to follow Christ, what do we got to do? We got to take up our cross. We got to deny ourselves. We have to follow him daily. That's what the, the, the requirement is for the followers of Jesus. It's not just a life of comfort. Notice I said earlier, listen, having money is not a bad thing. Having things is not a bad thing. Enjoying them is not a bad thing. But those things better not, better not be more than Jesus. They can't be more than Jesus. The third thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say sorrow. sorrow. Let's say that again. Sorrow. sorrow. There you go. Now you're awake. Sorrow may be, may be. The, beginning the beginning of faith and repentance. Sorrow may be the beginning of faith and repentance. Look at verse 23. I just want you to see this real quick. Look what it says. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful. When he heard these words, he became like, man. Really? Kind of like, you know, you're looking online or, or something like that. You see that car you like, and you don't see the price tag anywhere. And then you find out you're like, really? Like, man, I can't pay that price. It says he became very, not a little bit sorrowful. He became very sorrowful. Why? For he was very rich. 
He wasn't just a little rich. Come on, y'all. He was very rich. And he became sorrowful. He became broken. Now, I want you to put yourself in that situation. I want you to think about that person that is sincere about Jesus. And when you tell them to follow Christ, you got to leave that lifestyle. To follow Christ, you can't continue in that sin. To follow Jesus, you've got to say no to those things. I want you to think about them being sorrowful, and I want, to, I want to ask you a question. Would you try to deliver them from their sorrow? Would you try to deliver them from their sorrow? Or would you let them bake in that sorrow like Jesus did? I want you to notice, if you look at what happens next, look at what happens next. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he ran after him and hugged him and said, it's all right, I love you, I'm going to die for you. Is that what Jesus did? No, it says Jesus said, he took this as a moment, as a teachable moment for everybody, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Teachable moment. It's hard for rich people to come to Jesus. It's hard for people who are full to come to Jesus. But why do I bring this up? Would you try to liberate them from their sorrow? You know why? Because modern Christianity has lowered the standard of salvation to pray and receive as opposed to the biblical Christianity which declares repent and believe. See, there's a huge difference. I'll tell you all about that sweet Baptist lady who came to the detention center, sat down with me, and she had this whole conversation with me. And then at the end, she said, what, what hinders you from being saved? And I was like, look, man, I just don't want to give the lifestyle that I'm living. And her response to me was the worst. As sweet as she was, as well-intentioned as she was, her response to me was the worst ever, which was, listen, all you have to do is give your life to Jesus. He'll take care of the rest. Not true. Not true, y'all. Don't believe the lie. It is not true. You know why? What she was saying is pray and receive. Lower the bar of salvation. Pray and receive. You want to know what I did, y'all? I don't know if I told you this. I prayed and I received. And you know what I did? I went to my, 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 my room. I laid there in that bed. I said, God, you get me out of here and I'll go ahead and I'll serve you. You want to know what happened? My brother-in-law at the time, he came in and picked me up. He was the one that picked me up and brought me home. Gave me a haircut. You know what the next thing I did after I got a haircut? Went and had sex and got high. You know why? Because I prayed and received. I didn't repent and believe. What that sweet Baptist lady should have done is she just said, you know what, son? She should have looked me in my eyes and she just should have said, you know what, son? You have all the right answers. You know the way to heaven. The problem is you don't believe enough in order to turn from your sin. And until you do that, you are on your way to hell. And I don't mean to be mean, to be mean about it. I'm going to pray for you that God doesn't let you go that way, that God delivers you and God sets you free. And mind you, she's an old lady. She might have had a heart attack saying something like that. But nonetheless, she should have been bold enough to tell me the truth and not let me walk away thinking that all I had to do was pray and receive. That's not biblical Christianity. We are called to repent and believe. And what we have to realize is that sorrow may be the beginning of faith and repentance. When someone walks away, here's the thing. We don't really know for certain if this guy turned around at some point and followed Jesus. Some theologians have tracked back the guy, Joseph of Arimathea, that he was the one who was actually this guy here. That's what some theologians believe. I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I don't know enough. I haven't studied that out enough to know if that's him. But here is the reality. 
The reality is, is that sorrow in the hearts of men can be the thing that brings them to repentance. And if you try to intervene and interfere, you may hinder the sovereign work of God in their life. You may get in the way of God giving them a repentant heart. You may get in the way of God doing something inside of them that is necessary. So what do we learn from Jesus in his encounter with this thing? If you're taking notes, you can write these things down. And again, like I said, some of these things will be repetitious. So the first thing that we see with Jesus is that he was earning the right to ask questions. That was the first thing. He was earning the right to ask questions. Why do we know that he earned the right? Because this some, somehow the encounters that this young man had with Jesus were strong enough and enough for him to actually run to Jesus, kneel down before him, and then he didn't, he, he was sorrowful, but he allowed Jesus to probe him and ask him these questions. Here's what I want to say about that. It is only when we are respected and loved by family members, friends, neighbors, and co-workers that, that we will bring their, 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 that they will bring their questions to us and, we'll, and, and we will be able to ask good questions of them. Let me say that again. Only when we are respected and loved by family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers will they bring their questions to us, and we will be able to ask good questions of them. Listen, if we're not respected in the workplace, if we're not respected by neighbors, if we're not respected by family members, if we're not loved by them, listen, it's not just enough, it's not enough to be the religious nut. Your family needs to know you love them. And it's tough, right? Especially when their value systems are jacked up, they're totally different than yours. But here's the deal: they need to know you love them and so whatever listen is that it's not just enough for them to know you love Jesus they need to know you love them let me say it again it's not enough for them to know you love Jesus because you won't hang out with them because you won't be with them because you won't participate with them because they're so heinous so sinful so wretched right it's not enough for them to know well he loves Jesus she loves Jesus but do they care about me and listen, that doesn't mean you got to compromise. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is you need to figure out a way to make sure they know you love them. Because when you do, guess who they're going to come to? They're going to come to you. When they need prayer, they're coming to you. When they, when, when, when they need advice in those situations in life that, it, man, they just don't know the answers, guess who they're going to come to? They're going to come to the one. Listen, I can attest to that. You see my brother Alex? My brother Alex, he's, he works with the Usher team now. Today, uh, we baptized him, I think, two years ago or something like that. He, listen, I, I'm talking to you from experience. When this young man knew, he knew I loved him. He knew I cared for him. We, had, we have a relationship, and when he was a heathen, we had plenty of conversation where he hung up on me. Hello. I'm telling you. Plenty of conversation where he didn't want to hear what I had to say. He'll tell you, and if, I, if he's here at second service, you could ask him. I ain't lying to you. We had some, some hardcore conversations, but you know what? And I would, I would call and apologize. He'd be like, nah, man, don't ever apologize for me, my big brother. He appreciated that even though he hung up on me. Hello. <laughs> uh, he knew I loved him, right? And so we were able to come to that place where when it was time, when that day came and he was in sorrow and he was going through, I didn't deliver him from his sorrow. I was like, bro, you got to repent and believe, man. You got to turn from your sin. You got to lay your life down. Church, my brother's not, a, not, not an anomaly. I'm not some great, I'm no one. The reality is there has to be real repentance. There has to be that thing. And if you, don't, if you haven't earned the right to ask questions, you're never going to be able to do that. The second thing we see Jesus doing is he helps people see into their hearts. We talked about this last week. He helped people see into their hearts. Different than the lawyer, this guy was not, again, he was sincere. He was asking about eternal life. He just wasn't self-aware. 
And so how is it that we help people see their hearts? Now, I want you to take note of what I'm about to say. I'm going to give you three things that is important to helping people see their hearts. I want you to realize it's more than just asking questions. It's actually being involved. Are you here? It's more than just saying, hey, let me ask you something. It's actually going beyond the questions to actually doing life with someone. So the first thing is this. We need to have shown such care for people that they will allow us to get to know them well. We need to show them that we care, right? People don't care what you know until they know how much you care, all that kind of stuff. It's true. We need to show people that we care, show people that we're concerned. The second thing is this, is that we have to be deeply interested in people, willing to spend time developing close relationships. So we need to, we need to make it like we need to care about them, but we also need to invest time. You can't build a relationship just by seeing somebody once in a while. That's not how relationship build. That means that you may have to go out of your way like to do lunch with people once in a while. That means you may have to spend some time maybe outside of work, outside of wherever you are to actually engage with people a little bit more, right? Not just these acquaintance relationships. And the third thing is this. This is really important. We should be ready to count the cost of what it will mean for a person to open his or her heart to us. See, when someone opens their heart to us, they start telling us all about their junk. They start telling us stuff. Guess what? We can't just abandon them. We can't just walk away from them. And if they're not saved, it's like, man, this is, this is messy. This is ugly. This, yep, that's, yep, that's discipleship. There's a cost involved with being there for people and helping them see their hearts. Because people may have more questions before they're ready to step across the line of faith. Before they're ready to enter into church with you. And let me tell you this. Once they enter into church with you and once they start coming to church, don't just hand them off to someone else. Hello. You have to be involved in the discipleship of their life. Don't just say, oh, well, we got, I got you in the door. Praise the Lord. You like the church. Praise the Lord. I'm going to go find someone else. No, no, no. You are supposed to be a disciple maker. You're supposed to be involved in that person's life. The third thing is this. Help, Jesus was helping people understand the character of God. This is so important. So, so important. Jesus says to him, only God is good. When we understand who God is, looking at his goodness and his holiness, it does what? It exposes our hearts. It shows us our sinfulness. It, show us, it shows us our unworthiness for God's mercy. Jesus points to God's goodness, points to God's holiness, because what? When we understand who God is, we understand who we are. The next thing that we learn, and we talked about this last week, we see Jesus again being indirect. Jesus was indirect. He learned that indirect thing. As with the lawyer, Jesus wasn't direct with him. What did Jesus do? Jesus went there and he communicated to this guy. He pointed to the character of God. He directly pointed to the character of God. But what was he doing? Indirectly, he was trying to do what? He sought to bring the young man to the place where he would see his heart and recognize his sin. That's what he did. He pointed him to God so he could do what? So he could help this young man humble himself. But he indirectly said, hey, man, you got this issue here, which brings us to the next thing, is we see Jesus exposing the idols of his heart. Jesus exposes the idols of his heart. Idolatry, church, listen to me. Idolatry hinders people from bowing to God because they are bowing to something else. The reason why people don't want to bow to Jesus is because they're bowed to something else. When you look at the word richness, he was very rich. That word richness has to do, has the idea of being full. 
You don't have room for anything else. You don't need anything else because you're rich. When you feel like you're rich, whether it's emotionally, whether it's spiritually, whether it is whatever area of your life, and that, and that, that fullness comes from an idol, guess what? You're never going to come to God and ask him to fill that void because you have filled it with something else. And we have to be willing to help people confront the idols in their lives. And the last one is this. It is, it, it is we see Jesus wounding the heart in love. We see Jesus wounding the heart in love. Remember what I said in the first part of this point. The scripture says he became very sorrowful because he was very rich. I want you to turn to one place, 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 7, really quickly, because I want you to see in the context of Scripture, I won't, I won't walk through the whole thing and just break it all down, but I want you to see what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth as he writes to them. Chapter 7, first, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to read from verse 8 to verse 12. And he says this, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. So I want you to just notice that. I, Paul writes a letter. They were sorrowful because of his words. He says, I don't regret it now, but I did regret it. This shows his heart. See, some people lack this heart. They just don't regret it. I said what needed to be said. That's it, right? That's not Paul's heart. That shouldn't be our heart. He goes on, he says, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence is produced in you? What clearing of yourselves? What indignation? What fear? What vehement zeal or, or desire? What zeal? What vindication? In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul made them sad with a purpose. But man, he had a heart of love, church. And I, I need to point this out to you. Real love for people is willing to offend in order to heal. We must recognize the difference between a willingness to offend and an indifference to offending others. Here's the difference. One of them is bold and sensitive. The other one is brutal and insensitive. One of them is bold, and you're willing to proclaim God's word. But there's a sensitivity there. It is taking everything inside of you to actually say these words, to actually have that conversation. It is not something that is comfortable. The other one is brutal. It doesn't even care. It's just like, well, you know, God showed me this, or you know what, you need to hear this, and that's it. Church, we need to ask God to search our hearts. We need to ask God to search our hearts to make sure that we are not brutal and insensitive in the name of the Lord. Because if you are, you're not helping people, you're hurting people. You're not bringing anyone to godly sorrow. You're bringing people to the place that they don't want to deal with you. They don't want to hear from you, much less hear from the God you represent. And so we have to be careful. 
At the end of the day, here's the thing. Jesus makes it clear, salvation is a sovereign work of God. Hear me when I say this. God must actively save men. They cannot save themselves. That is why the gospel must, must be preached clearly, church. The gospel must be preached clearly. The beauty and the majesty of God's goodness must be made known. The filth and wretchedness of man's sin must be exposed. The horrors of sin's consequences, which is an eternity of suffering apart from God, must be made clear. The glorious mercy of God in Christ must be made known. And the faithfulness of God to all who repent and believe must be declared. Here's my, cl- my, my closing question for you. Are you living? Jesus says these last words, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Are you living like you believe what is impossible for man is possible with God? Are you living your life saying, man, you know what? I can't save anybody, but Jesus can. Are you living your life praying for, dealing with, living for the glory of God in front of people, making it, making it abundantly clear in the way that you live, the way that you pray for them? Are you living like you believe, man? I can't do it. They can't do it. But God can do it. Let's bow our hearts. Let's pray before the Lord. Father, we humble our hearts before you today, and we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy and for your kindness. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would let these words resonate and sink deep into our hearts. And Lord, we pray today for all of our sincere friends, for all of our sincere family members, for all of our sincere co-workers, for all of our sincere neighbors that we know, Lord God, that are sincerely missing you, that are sincerely deceived, Lord God, that something is eclipsing their desire for eternal life. God, may you soften the ground of their hearts. May you give us wisdom as we probe and as we question them. And we pray these things believing in Jesus' name, amen. Come on and put your hands together for the Lord.